And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning. Um, just before I came up here, uh, before the worship service, I was reading on my Facebook. Uh, one of my groups is a uh, Presbytery uh, Facebook group. And there was a post at, where a pastor was asking for prayer because he uh, was now visiting a couple who just lost their child in a uh, camping accident. And I was reading that, and uh, I just kind of broke down uh, emotionally. Uh, there's not enough time uh, to love God and love people. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, can we turn to the people next to you? They are the image of God uh, living in a broken and suffering world. And if you could tell them, uh, because we are short on time in loving God fully and loving people fully, and you tell them with the time that you have that you love them, that you are excited to be uh, in fellowship with them, and you express your love for one another, about 10 seconds. You can ask yourself if that person really meant it. <laughs> uh, but I believe in the Lord, yes. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are so good to us. Uh, your mercies are new every morning. And we come to worship you, uh, not because you take care of every single issue in our lives, but we come to you because you never change and your goodness is always overflowing so that we trust your character. We trust that you gave your son for us and that is the foundation upon which we stand. The world is never trustworthy. Health and financial prosperity are never trustworthy enough of our allegiance. Would you rid us of the folly of trying to base our lives upon foundations that can be shaken? Uh, but Father, would you draw our hearts to trust upon the only one worth trusting, which is Christ Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you draw the hearts of your worshipers and your children to be in communion with you today, that as we listen to your letter to Smyrna, that we would respond uh, know how to apply this to our lives and, and cause it to form power and joy in our lives. Father, we so rely upon you. Be with us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the description of a perfect risk-averse family. Risk-averse family. Uh, they have traditionally called this the Iron Triangle. Uh, let me explain that. Uh, the Iron Triangle is basically... Uh, let's say a smart man, uh, he graduates law school, and he meets a smart woman who finishes her medical uh, residency at a hospital. And they get married. Uh, <clears throat> she takes care of the health of the family, and the man takes care of the legal issues. And as they live together, they earn lots of money. So as they're earning money, uh, they have a daughter, and their daughter becomes an accountant to take care of all the money. And that's traditionally called the immigrant Iron Triangle. That's how you uh, make sure that no happiness leaks outside of the family. 
in an immigrant society. And recently, that has been updated. They call it now the Golden Square. Uh, apparently, they're so afraid of going to hell that their son they sent to seminary. <laughs> so uh, now it's a golden uh, <laughs> square where you have finances, you have legal protection, you have medical protection, and you have spiritual protection. Um, what am I trying to say? is that we structure our lives and set our hopes, a lot of it, upon avoiding uh, suffering. Avoiding suffering in these various areas, whether it's you know, mental, health, uh, spiritual, financial. And the diagnosis, the, the diagnosis of the church series is all bent upon looking at the inward workings of our heart to see what's causing that. Why is that there? Like, what does that say about me? And in the reverse, or in in the inverse, we can also ask this. If I'm going through suffering, what does it say about me as well? And so this is the diagnosis of the church series. And we are now on the second church, uh, the church, the letter to the church in Smyrna. This was a uh, city 35, 25, 30 miles, I think, north of Ephesus. And uh, it's the city of Smyrna. Can we take a look at the picture? This is modern-day Smyrna. It's called Izmir. Uh, is it up on the screen yet? Izmir? Very, very beautiful, uh, modern city. Uh, if the picture is not there. Wish you could see it. Uh, look up Izmir. Oh, there, there it is. Um, and this is the second largest city in Turkey after Istanbul, and it's currently called Izmir, uh, the Turkish rendition of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna means myrrh in Greek. Uh, myrrh, when you uh, burnt that uh, as an aroma for dead people uh, to commemorate them. And the city was most likely named because myrrh was Smyrna's most popular uh, and most largest and most valuable export during ancient times. So this country produced myrrh out of a tree. Uh, and so this, uh, there was a lot of wealth and uh, affluence in this beautiful city, uh, but at the same time, there was a heavy persecution going on. So uh, this letter was written, uh, around this time the, uh, the re- this letter was written, there was a group of Jews who were within the city and they were slandering Christians. Uh, that's, that picture's past now, thank you. And uh, verse 9 says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are a synagogue of Satan. Now what this means is that this isn't just a, a bunch of Jews saying, you know, bad gossip about these people, about Christians. Uh, what was actually happening was that during the Roman Empire, Judaism was a recognized religion uh, that wasn't persecuted because it has such ancient roots that the Roman Empire didn't want to risk uprooting that and causing uproar because they wanted Pax Romana, uh, stability. So uh, they allowed Judaism to continue, and the church was basically saying that it is a fulfillment of Judaism uh, that is so inherently connected that it should be seen as an extension of Judaism, and so it should be receiving legal protection. And here's what was happening is that the people in the synagogues, the Jews, uh, they were saying, no, they are not part of us. We have nothing to do with their Messiah. Uh, We only share the same text, and they are uh, misinterpreting it. And so they would uh, officially uh, report this to the Roman uh, officials, and then the persecution of the church would happen. And there were so many people killed in this city, uh, you know, uh, the church father, Polycarp, he was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. Uh, so Polycarp uh, was set on fire uh, for believing in Jesus at the age of 83. He was burned to death, and one of the reports was that the people loved him so much that even the Roman officers 
carrying out the execution, loved him so much that he plunged a dagger into his heart while he was burning alive. And after that, 12 more very well-known Christian leaders would burn at the stake uh, in Smyrna because they weren't receiving uh, Jewish uh, protection uh, in that area. They weren't receiving uh, official Roman uh, uh, pardon. Uh, But they survived. And not only did they remain faithful, now uh, Smyrna, uh, Izmir, is now home to at least 200 churches even in the midst of Islamicization of that area. What's really interesting is Ephesus used to be the biggest city uh, back in in that area. And now Ephesus, uh, Jesus promised that if you lose your first love, that I will remove your lampstand. And so now there is no, there's no city even in Ephesus. There's no church. It's just a bunch of ruins that have ancient, you know, historical value. But Smyrna is a busting city now, uh, which has a lot of churches, and they're still continuing to survive in the midst of persecution. Beautiful, beautiful church. So it's not a surprise when Jesus appears to this church, this suffering small church in beautiful Smyrna, and Jesus says to him, these are the words of what? Every time Jesus introduces himself to another church, he uses different titles, like the one, you know, who has the seven spirits of God, the one who holds the seven lampstands, and in, in today's case, he is the one who is the first and last who died and came to life again. Jesus is approaching this church because he knew that this church needed a suffering and a risen Messiah to overcome their fears. If any of you are suffering, the hope that Jesus gives us today in his very identity is that he empathizes with you in your suffering. He suffered unlike any other Roman or Greek or pagan god or unlike other, any, other, any other Eastern religion. Our God jumped into suffering so that he would be called he who died and, be, and rose again. And so Jesus is saying, I know what you're going through. I am the, the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life again. And to a suffering church, that is comfort. Like, he never explains why we suffer. Like, God is not about rational games, about pursuing us logically why suffering had to happen. He suffers himself. And he says, if I can suffer, there is a wide enough umbrella under me where you're suffering can be understood. So what does this Jesus say to a suffering church? And remember, ecclesiology, we've been starting this from January 1st. Uh, The first Sunday of January, we we talked about this. Uh, Not only does ecclesiology talk about the body of the church, we are the church, amen? And so if we are the church, it's talking about us. Jesus has a personal word for suffering people. I know all of you suffer different degrees. It might not be the persecution that you see in the Middle East. It might not be the persecution you see in North Korea, but everyone suffers in a way that is unique and distinct and deserves Scripture's attention. And so what does Jesus say to suffering people? Number one, suffering points to spiritual wealth. Repeat after me, suffering points to spiritual wealth. Is that an amen? Amen. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's really internalize this. There is a lot of things going on in this short verse. Once again, Jesus says, I know. Jesus knows his church. He knows when you suffer. He knows the church in Smyrna is undergoing severe distress. 
The words suffer here, afflictions and poverty. Affliction here is called thalipsis in Greek. And thalipsis is only used in a lot of extreme circumstances. In context, uh, the kind of distress a woman goes through in, in childbirth and labor, that's thalipsis. Uh, the distress you feel when you are being besieged by an army. So we've never actually felt thalipsis to that scale. The suffering that Jesus had to undergo on the cross. Thalipsis, affliction, is that kind of a severe word. And so Smyrna was suffering big time. The church was suffering hugely. And so Jesus is saying, he knows that the church in Smyrna is fighting also poverty. Poverty. And this word is not just pointing to, you know, uh, just minute poverty. It's pointing to economic persecution. Poverty in Greek means beggary and starvation. It's not like my job pays well, uh, doesn't pay well, but at least I have a phone, a tablet, and a MacBook. Like, that's not the kind of poverty we're talking about. The kind of poverty we're addressing here is absolute poverty where people are struggling to eat every day. So persecution and poverty, two Ps that we always want to avoid by, you know, iron triangles or, you know, golden squares, whatever. So why is it to this church that Jesus says, yet you are rich? Because... Depletion in worldly goods and comfort for the sake of Christ results in heavenly riches. And none of you are excited about this. I know. None of us are excited about this. Out of the seven churches that John writes these letters to in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, five of the letters contain harsh rebukes. Like Jesus is rebuking these churches, and they are going to be re removed as churches later on. And only two churches have no criticism against them and are only commended for doing well. And these are churches Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia. And what's interesting is that both Smyrna and Philadelphia have one common characteristic. They were both heavily persecuted. They were both suffering extremely. It's not exactly that persecution, listen to this, persecution doesn't make you commendable. Like, persecution doesn't make you favorable, but here's how I process this. Uh, their love didn't cool like Ephesus, and they weren't compromising like the church Pergamum, or they weren't decaying from lack of doctrine like Thyatira, or they weren't lacking good deeds like uh, Sardis, or they weren't lukewarm like uh, Laodicea. And because they were so fervently in love and so doctrinally based that they were the most hated and harshly persecuted by the world because they didn't compromise their love for following Jesus Christ in all spheres of their life. That's why they're persecuted. And so them being persecuted doesn't justify them before the Lord. They were so in love with Christ that persecution was a natural consequence for Smyrna and Philadelphia. And we need to think about this. I mean, are we suffering because of how much we love the Lord? Everyone suffers. Uh, it's a universal uh, impulse. It's a universal response. It's a universal phenomenon. But are we suffering for the right reason? So for example, uh, when believing in Jesus inconveniences you by one hour in worship service, then at least what all of you are proving just by your attendance here is this a very economic principle that you value Jesus more than one hour of your time. Uh, there's an economic trade-off, right? When people believing in Jesus, um, 
if you believe in Jesus in a persecuted country means that you have to pay an extra 30% more income taxes, then a lot of the people disperse and they disappear. And the people who remain, who, you know, put their thumb on an iPad and they, they say, I'll pay 30% more taxes because it's worth believing in Jesus, that that means that you're proving at least Jesus is worth 30% more of your income. So when the persecution takes everything away, everything away, and you still remain a Christian in faith, this means that those are people who have nothing but Christ. And there's an economic trade-off going on here. Uh, These are people who confess that Jesus is better than life. Keller says it this way, you really don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And we're living in a society where Jesus is, like, serving and loving Jesus is equivalent to surrendering one hour on Sunday, and we won't go beyond that. And so to us, it's worth one hour of our time. And that's valuable. It's just that, are we seeing persecution and suffering and a depletion of what I want because Jesus is more precious than that? Suffering happens if you love Jesus radically. The more radically you love Jesus, the world will oppose you and begin to take away your comforts. Opportunity cost, economic opportunity cost, makes you take a very harsh look at your heart's priorities. Now, what would make you give up your walk with Jesus today? Like, I'm not talking about, you know, what would it take for you to, you know, uh, you know, disown Jesus, to not follow him forever. I'm saying today, what would it cost uh, for you to give up Jesus today? Like family time or a soccer game or fishing and golfing? Like, these are things that we deliberately do knowing that we are losing out time with conversing and being with our Lord. There is an economic cost to this. Now, I'm not trying to accuse you. Um, I'm merely saying that our choices reveal Jesus' worth to us, to myself. Can I get, like, a microphone, please? Thank you. Uh, James 2.5 says this, Listen, my, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Basically, what's going on is that uh, when you love Jesus so much that you're losing out on the things of the world, all you have is Jesus. And what that means is this. If Jesus is all you have, is he enough? Is he enough? I mean, Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is sovereign over all things. He is our most prized possession. And so we're, we're actually saying, if Jesus is all I have and that's enough, that's basically showing us how much we, offer, we, we cherish Jesus Christ in our lives. And there is a, an economic cost to this. The church uh, where Jesus looks perfect, uh, that confession comes from suffering Christians. You have to have lost something in your life to know how precious Jesus is, and that reinforces how much you love Jesus. This applies at an individual level. To make an omelet, you need to break and crack an egg, and to make a Christian, you need suffering. Uh, suffering is scorned in this world, but it's valued in the next. It's scorned in this world, but it's valued in the next. Uh, let's take a look at something that shocked me on Amazon. Uh, Lego set. Uh, that Death Star costs, how much is it? 
that cost $2,600. And uh, I had buckets of Legos when I was young. I was like, I wish I sold them. I wish I sold them because uh, I didn't know how much valuable we'd become. Like, Legos are like gold now, right? And if you want to buy a stuff for your child, like, you actually have to make an investment. Uh, but here's the thing. If I had sold my Legos that I had, like, you know, if I saved them, would I get this price? Probably not, because even if you put all those random pieces that I had bucket, in buckets together, it wouldn't form this thing, this death star. And the same thing, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of our suffering, you know, because suffering is such a universal experience, we say, okay, I suffered in this, I suffered in this area, you know, I lost a MacBook before, I, you know, uh, lost my phone in a car drive, and we're about to say suffering, if that produces value in the future, then I have tons of it. But here's the thing, it doesn't produce things that actually have value unless this, like, all your suffering is making you more into Jesus Christ. And so your suffering has to have a direction. Like, your suffering can't just be the daily sufferings that have no meaning. It is suffering that produces Christ-likeness in your heart. That is the suffering that produces long-term value in, into the future. Closeness to Christ quantified through suffering, needs to produce Christ-likeness in your lives. And that will be the only currency in the future. I mean, it, like all the things that we live for, the, the, the golden squares uh, the, that we produce in our lives. I mean, what will you say when we go to heaven and one day we recognize that everything you loved and everything you lived for are actually worthless as rags. Everything that caused you to abandon more time and love for Jesus, you actually go to the future and it's worth nothing. And what if, like, you know, Bitcoin in 2010, you're suffering to become more like Christ, to love him and honor him more in a world that is gradually growing hostile. What if that was worth everything in the coming kingdom to come? Wouldn't you be angry with your pastor that he didn't tell you that Suffering right now that produces Christ-likeness is worth infinite value in the, in the world to come. That day is coming. Like, the post I read on Facebook before I came up here, like, we don't know when personally that world will come for us because, you know, we don't know when we're going to die. And all the things that we strive for every single day, Monday through Friday, where you use all your time and energy for, what if that was worthless and the only thing that was actually valuable is actually you striving to become more like Christ? What if? What if? That means a whole rededication of the direction of our lives. Do you know that godly suffering is the value, the currency of the future? It's scorned now. It's devalued now, but in the future, God will look upon that and see his perfect children becoming like Christ, and he will call that beautiful and perfect and valuable. So number one, suffering points to spiritual wealth. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What have you lost due to your love for Jesus? I know we're all about welfare, we're all about, you know, mental health and all those good things, but I hope that there are days in your life where you lose sleep because you are sorrowful about your sin. I hope there are days where you actually lose money because you give it to someone that you're trying to evangelize. 
I hope there are days that you actually suffer and lose out on opportunities because you're coming to church here on Sundays. And may God bless you and compensate you forever for all the times that you come to worship and gather and love one another. And I hope that in the future you'll see that this had infinite value. But if only you could see that right now, how different our lives would look. Every single second spent for the glory of God. Amen? Number two, suffering is not just pointing to spiritual wealth. Number two, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Uh, there is a graph that I forgot to uh, show you. Um, there is a poll done by Gallup. And Gallup was showing that despite all the uh, poverty that was alleviated in the past 10 years, uh, anxiety, depression, anger, uh, uh, restlessness, and mental uh, illnesses increased by, I think, uh, 12 points. And so there was a gradual growing of our mental illnesses while economic poverty went down. And so no matter what, no matter where you are, if you're, even if you're in the United States, all of us go through suffering to some degree. And so it is inevitable in the human experience. What exactly do you have to endure, though? Verses 9 and 10 says, uh, Smyrna will go through this. Like, it says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You're going to go through poverty and persecution, prison, and eventually death. And, you know, I could give you a list of statistics of Christian persecution around the globe. I mean, back in 2017, there were 3,066 uh, 3, documented cases of death and beheadings and uh, tortures and, and death that led to death, with the uh, calculated averages being closer to 100,000 martyrs per year, the most heavily persecuted religion in the world, and there are no uh, articles about it because people don't like to focus on that. Open Doors calculates uh, by January 2020, uh, last year, that there's at least eight Christians being killed per day because of their religion, not because they were involved in a random uh, you know, car accident. But throwing numbers at the Western church doesn't do us a lot of good because it's so hard to read texts like today to talk about a suffering church because of various reasons. We aren't being persecuted like this, number one. Number two, we don't want to be persecuted like this. And number three, we don't expect to be persecuted like this. And this is why the question of the century arises, why do we think that suffering is so strange and unexpected? 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Like Peter is saying, don't think of suffering as something that's really weird and random. It will happen, and you will be uh, caught up in it. And so Jesus promises in Luke 9.23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew 10.38, And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There is no choice for a Christian. At least 30 verses in, in Scripture explicitly say that Christ followers will suffer. If we do not suffer persecution, then it is very hard to be considered a Christian based on Scripture. Based on Scripture. Now, it'd be easy for me to take the easy way out of this by saying, okay, uh, don't worry, you are suffering every day, and whenever there is economic adversity, uh, whenever your children are sick, whenever you feel alone and lonely, yes, uh, you are suffering. But rarely do we suffer for the name and the sake of Jesus. 
I mean, are we being persecuted for his name? If we love Jesus fully and follow him fully, then someone in Centerville should be voicing their anger or their discomfort towards you. I mean, you wouldn't be fitting in with the crowd. I mean, you'd be too right for left people, and you'd be too left for right people. And you'd be, you know, you'd have your own standards of holiness and compassion and biblical justice that the world doesn't agree upon. And gradually they would say and see that you are not part of their club and therefore suffering. The world has to see that. I mean, are there people who are uncomfortable by you? Christians used to be called people of crisis. Whenever they went, people would have to make a decision about how to live their life because they lived in such a weird way that wherever they went, people were thrown into crisis. It's like gaslighting. It's like what reality is real? Like the coming future kingdom of God or is my kingdom right now? Which one is real? That's the confusion that Christians cause in the people around them. And even the church might not like you if you are radically devoted to Christ. There was a blog that I read uh, that Jesus would have been kicked out as a youth pastor. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, imagine Pastor John or Pastor Sam. Let's say uh, they tell your children that they have to abandon their parents, even if it's their funeral, and follow him. Right? Now, what if, you know, they said uh, they would take them uh, out for lunch with prostitutes and, and dinner with drug addicts, and they were always out there living in the streets, and they never came home? Jesus would be fired by most PTAs today. Radical devotion to Jesus is even dangerous in the church. It's inevitable. And I receive so much love and affirmation from you that I'm wondering if I'm doing my job correctly. Really, I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know why there aren't more angry people here because I'm challenging every single idol I can think of right now Stability, financial stability, health, uh, well-off children who are well-balanced psychologically and emotionally. I'm challenging every one of those to say that Christ is worth more. And I hope you're either offended or you're blessed by this, not neutrally shutting off your ears and ignoring what I'm saying and taking just what you need out of this sermon. I hope that you're challenged either way, forming a crisis in your hearts. I did a little research on how myrrh is extracted. Uh, if you look at the next picture, uh, myrrh is extracted from a tree called Kamaphora myrrh. This is a Kamaphora myrrh tree, and a lot of it grows in Izmir today. And in order to harvest this, uh, you have to injure the tree, scrape the tree without killing it. And so every time you draw a deep wound, uh, it starts and stimulates a process called gamosis. Uh, it's like gumming. So the tree gums up, uh, on the wound to protect himself. And uh, after 10 days of keeping on, you know, uh, scraping that gum off and letting it, you know, bleed out resin again and then scraping it off, after 10 days, the harvester goes a second time, a third time, and then usually uh, over time, uh, the smell gets more richer, more fragrant, and it's repeated injury that causes this to produce the best resin. And John the Baptist, John the uh, 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 Apostle, He's looking at Smyrna and saying, I know how you produce myrrh. That is how Jesus is producing his fragrance in you. Weekly, daily, someone is scratching you up and wounding you and almost killing you. And every time you endure, there is fragrance being produced in your lives. Fragrance. 
over millennia. It says a, 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 a murder harvester said this uh, in an interview. It says, over millennia, people have learned how far you can go without killing the tree, and then ultimately it dies. And for millennia, people have experimented on how far they can go with Christians before they die. And I'm wondering, are you experiencing this? The scraping and the wounding of your soul so that nothing else is as valuable as Christ. That you're producing Christ-likeness all your, all your life. The church of Smyrna, the, the church of Myrrh, was undergoing continued cut after cut after cut of suffering to produce an aroma. And, you know, I love the Korean song. That song, basically, I'll translate it into English. Uh, the rose in the, thorn, the field of thorns produces fragrance. Why? Because it's being scraped all the time. I wonder, are you producing fragrance as a result of your suffering? Amen? Finally, suffering is not in vain. The last thing about suffering is that it is not in vain. Verse number 10, be faithful even to the point of death. 죽도록 충성하라. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Once again, John is looking upon this city, and he's looking at a, uh, a temple uh, which is offered and dedicated to a uh, Roman uh, Caesar, I think. I forgot which one it, one it was. And the temple was constructed on a hill, and it looked like a crown adorning a head. And so uh, John was basically looking at that, and he was saying, you know, endure in your faith. You know, even if the Jews call you out and you're dying on a weekly basis, and let's say 12 of your most famous leaders die to protect the faith, you will receive an actual crown, not the false crowns that these false gods are receiving. You will receive eternal life. And so suffering and enduring suffering produces not just fragrance in this life, but eternal life and eternal glory that will carry, will carry on until the end of time. Jesus suffered faithfully even unto death. And Scripture records, for the joy set before him. What joy did Jesus have? The joy of seeing humanity glorified before God and God receiving all the praise. For that, he endured the suffering of the cross. Jesus was looking at the joy that lied behind the curtain of suffering and the victory of God, the forgiveness of sin, the death of evil and sin, eternal glory and intimacy with God, satisfaction in who he is. That is the kind of joy that we're waiting for, which we are able to say, yes, suffering is worth it. But we're so schizophrenic when it comes to suffering. Every time, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking about myself. Every time that I have suffered, I've always been bitter. I, I wish I could have been more pastoral. I wish I could have been more of a Christian leader to say, yeah, every time I suffered, I glorify God. But you know what? It hurt. It really hurt. And we're so schizophrenic because we forget what this is producing in my life. Glory and fragrance, Christ-like fragrance right now an eternal glory where I will be before God forever. I, I forget that equation all the time. I forget that suffering is the Bitcoin of tomorrow. I forget that it, it will climb in value and God will see me on the basis of what Christ has done for me in his suffering and how much I have become part of that. I kid you not, 
I promise you over and over, Jesus says you will carry your cross daily. And I'm afraid of seeing Christians who don't have crosses on their backs because it's proving your identity. I'm not saying that you should try to suffer as a formula. I'm trying to say that if you're not suffering because of Christ, like, are you Christian? Because Jesus promised it would happen. And I'm pleading for your souls right now. I'm pleading for your identity. Are you suffering because of Christ? There was a Chinese underground leader who saw how Americans prayed for the persecuted underground church that the government would stop hunting them down, allow Christianity to be officially recognized, and he replied, no, please change your prayer request. Don't pray that God would make our crosses lighter, but to strengthen our shoulders so that we can bear heavier crosses because they found joy in going to jail. I, I remember one of the first local underground church gatherings that I was at in 2001. Every single Christian there had something broken about them. They, they lost an eye. They lost, you know, a hand. They, uh, they were hobbling because they, they were, had been chained so long that they actually walked as if they had a chain because they were basically accustomed unto it. And I saw all of them worshiping God 12 hours. I mean, their hymnals have 99 verses. And they're sitting down on a, on a like, hard wooden floor in cold weather singing 99 verses because they love God so much because they have proven that Christ is worth more than that in their own suffering. And I'm like, I wish we could do that. I wouldn't be able to stand 99 verses of singing. But where is our love for God if not proven by by persecution? I know I'm going to complain later, but I hope the day comes when they tax us more because we're Christian. I hope the day comes when there will be more official ridicule for Christians, that they call us intolerant bigots, and they call us people who have a false sense of morality, a false love, a false holiness. And I hope that becomes public, so that when we enter these doors, we know what exactly we're confessing. Lord, you are more valuable than this. Lord, you are more valuable than just 30 minutes of my time. Lord, you are more valuable than the persecution I go through. Lord, I love you. And imagine our worship service. We'd be jumping up and down at every single song, every syllabus we'd be jumping up and down. (laughs) It's not syllabus, syllable. Every syllable we'd be jumping up and down because we know how precious our Lord is. I pray for persecution to come upon us, that we would know the value of Christ. If you remember in January, I preached through a sermon series called The Paradox Series, The Paradox of the Church, the paradox of all these things that are meant to strengthen worldly organizations but weakens the church. Now, I actually missed out and I didn't preach on two other paradoxes. One was the paradox of strategy and one was the paradox of suffering. Suffering strengthens the Christian and suffering strengthens the church and it does it beautifully. Over the span of 30 years in China, uh, there was a period when there were about 70,000 Christians. And later, in 30 years, they turned into 7 million, multiplied 100 times fold. And now, there's an estimated 93 to 115 million Christians in China. Ten times multiplication over uh, over that period again, over 30 years again. 
Was it because of good programs or good students and small group cultures or you know, good education or good childcare? It was because every historian traces it to one event, the cultural revolution that killed every Christian, everyone who called themselves Christians by students who were masquerading in the streets and, and, and having impromptu uh, trials and just killing Christians on the spot by looking at you know, the books that they carried. Even right now, if you go to the Middle East or China, they'll look at the apps that you have on your phone. And if you have a Bible app, you are out. And that caused Christianity to grow. And every, every single one of the 93 to 150 million Christians are not lukewarm. They love the Lord. They honor the Lord in their everyday lives. And they are ready to lose more because of the Lord. And they are producing Smyrna, myrrh before the Lord. And it's so beautiful. I wonder what fragrance we're producing in our lives. Are we producing fragrance because there's nothing hurting us there's nothing that can touch the church here. We're so well organized. We're so well politically connected. We have so many systems in place that we avoid suffering. China has become a country filled with people who not only realize that they can survive without their civil liberties, they can survive without their iPhones, they can survive without all these things that we call necessities. And they also understand one more thing, that they live by Christ alone. My blessing to KCPC, may we produce myrrh fragrance. Every single one of you, I'm not talking about the church, you, beautiful, precious you, made in the image of God, made to produce fragrance in a world that stinks of sin and evil and brokenness and death. You are made to produce that. And the only way to get at that, I'm sorry, is not through happiness and success and joys in life. Like, I don't remember the last time I was so happy when I passed a job interview. Like, passing a job interview gave me about two weeks of joy. But suffering produces eternal value. And I bless you with that. I'm so sorry if this scares you. I bless you with persecution. I bless you with suffering that you would know how valuable Christ is and live in accordance with that. Can you dare say amen? Lord, please protect us. Guard their hearts. God's people suffer, but they don't suffer in vain. That's why the story of God's people is birthed in Egypt in the context of slavery but ends in victory at Canaan. That's why the story of the church begins in a manger, and it climaxes at a cross, but ends at the presence of a victorious lamb that was slain. How do we respond to this? Pray for suffering? Do we go out looking for suffering? Not really. We don't look for it, Yes, of course, life is not about avoiding suffering, but neither is it about just looking for it for its own sake. How do we respond to this sermon? Love Jesus so much. Love Jesus so much. See what he did for you upon the cross, how he suffered for you. Love him so much. Follow him so much that the world has no choice but to call you the son of a different father, the son of God himself. And then persecution happens 
because of your love for God. But let us be encouraged. Can we actually stand up and read the last verse and we'll conclude with this? Can we look at the picture, the last picture that I prepared? I'll read this all together in faith and trust, actually banking upon these, this verse, investing into this verse. I'll read it together. One, two, three. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, this sermon scares the heck out of me because I asked if they would be blessed with suffering, and they have responded yes, and they said that they would carry the cross of Jesus, and they want to be real about their faith, and they want to be real about how much they value you. Father, I pray that as you reveal how much Christ is worth to us over time, that he is indeed better than life. Lord, please be gentle with them. Please have mercy upon their hearts. Don't give them more than they can withstand. But let Christ be their advocate. May Christ be their protector. May the Holy Spirit encourage them with daily joy so that once they have a taste of you, they would be so addicted to following you that suffering would just become a natural consequence. It would just become a daily inconvenience because the joy of loving you is so great. Father, bless your church. May, may KCPC produce fragrance forever. Just as Smyrna continues unto this day and produces churches that still undergo persecuting, even today in 2021, I pray that KCPC, because of the fragrance that it is emitting in a world that is hostile to you, that we would continue being a church that is faithful to the calling. Father, what more can I ask? Holy Spirit, be with us. Encourage us in the midst of our suffering. Help us ensure that every suffering is designed to make us more like Christ and not just a natural consequence of our stupidity or, or, or of our sinfulness or our brokenness. But Father, we finally thank you that because we are in Christ, Every single mistake that we make and every single sin that we commit, you have forged and designed that so that it would make us more like Christ and not cause that to destroy us. And so, Father, that is the ultimate assurance that we have, that in Christ, every suffering that we go through, by your providence and your guidance, will make us more like the fragrance of Jesus. So with that great assurance, we thank you, we love you, we honor you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in worship.